Welcome to the Recycle Podcast, where we discuss everyday issues from a mental health perspective. We are your hosts, Dr. Rashonda Strickland, Dr. LaFanya Jones-Hines, and Dr. Nichelle Wall. Now don't get it twisted. We're not going to be your stereotypical therapist. What we will be is informative, down to earth, a little spicy, and vulnerable. All right, interns, turn up your volume, grab your pen and paper. It's supervision time. As a reminder, this podcast is not meant to take the place of a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to session 117, Shrink Wrap with the love life of Asian guy, a.k.a. Lag, a.k.a. Rainier Manning-Link. <laughs> <laughs> Today's mood music is brought to you by Miguel Boat from the soundtrack of Crazy Rich Asian. Y'all, so we got a treat for y'all today. You know, we love Rainier. <laughs> so excited. Yes, we're so excited to have somebody famous on our um, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> So just to give you just a little bit of uh, background about him, because he can definitely speak for himself we, as we love his voice. Rainier Menindine is the founder and chief brand officer of Lag Media, a branding and strategic communications agency for BIPOC creatives <laughs> <laughs> and progressives. Lag Media works exclusively with BIPOC content creators, small business owners, activists, and nonprofit organizations to build sustainable brands committed to activating social change. Mm -hmm. How about that, Lag? Mm -hmm. Y'all welcome (laughs) the love life of an Asian guy, a.k.a. Rainier. Yay! Hello, hello. Thank you so much (laughs) for inviting me onto the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for accepting our invite. We really appreciate it. This is something we've been wanting to do for a while. So we are super, super excited to have you um, and appreciate you taking that chance on us and with us. Yes. <laughs> uh, when we reached out to Rainier a long time ago and uh, asked, you know, was asking him questions and he responded. Y'all, we were so excited. You would have thought Janet Jackson <laughs> had uh, said something to us because we was like, oh, my God, somebody famous said something back to us. <laughs> <laughs> it's little things, you know, you that that connection, you yes. know, and, and the fact that he's like interacting with yes. his folks that Absolutely. follow him is Absolutely. so cool. Yeah. So we wanted to start off by asking, you know, what do you have going on currently? You know, what do you have going on in the future? What are some ways that if we were going to expand into your audience, we'd be able to figure out what you got going on? Well, you know, the past two years have been you know, quite the roller coaster. I started my uh, branding agency uh, right when COVID, you know, came and disrupted all of our lives. And so I had, you know, a short amount of time to kind of buckle down and jumpstart this business. And so it's been really fascinating meeting all different types of people, connecting with different businesses that I had no idea were within the network of our, um, you know, lab community. And so now I'm just trying to uh, trying to have the agency grow. We're trying to reach out to uh, uh, filmmakers and lawyers and doctors and uh, you know uh, documentarians and politicians. And so um, I can't wait 
to see what happens. You know, uh, if the last 10 years of me running my uh, community has been any indication of what might come to the future, then I just got to say that I'm really excited. Yes. Oh, wow. I think one of the things that we've really appreciated about, um, you know, we were followers originally um, before we started working together. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we really appreciated about you was your advocacy for, um, you know, black and brown individuals. Mm -hmm. So one of the main things that I was wondering was, you know, what have you seen as far as changes in access to mental health for um, the Asian and or Asian American community? So, I mean, I can only truly speak uh, from the Asian American perspective, but I do have some thoughts uh, overall. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that I feel like there's definitely more Asian Americans who are speaking about mental health. They're pursuing careers in mental health. They're developing brands and platforms designed to increase access to mental health services. But I still believe that the idea that mental health is even a valid concern is still heavily in contradiction to how a lot of Asian uh, families were raised to believe that, you know, emotions and your feelings about all this don't even matter. And that all that actually matters are the material successes, the material wealth. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Asian communities, the idea of saving face is huge. And so image and status and reputation and brand can be everything to a lot of these Asian families. And so, you know, I've always talked about how a lot of Asian families sometimes feel like they're run like organizations and companies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these families and parents will treat their kids kind of like employees. You know, they'll feel like they need to dominate and control uh, their life path at every step of the way, um, all in the name of, oh, well, we just want what's the best for you. We want you to go to a good college. We want you to make a lot of money. Um, and I just think that this narrow-minded focus on material success just becomes the justification for a lot of toxic behavior. And so, you know, when family members who do end up speaking up about this abuse and the stuff that's been happening in their family, when they do talk about it, they get stigmatized and they get pushed down for bringing these things up. And it just ends up further perpetuating the problem by forcing people and family to hold in secrets and hold in different experiences because they don't want anybody to think that anything's wrong. Mm -hmm. So although there are like more Asian American health professionals, we definitely need more conversations in terms of uh, mental health in BIPOC communities and Asian communities and just more education and information in general. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think, um, happens in the Asian community that will allow them to now start participating in mental health services? What do you think has changed? I think what's ultimately changed is a lot of um, millennials and ex geners are taking to social media because it's been sort of this alternative outlet outside of just like talking amongst your friends or talking amongst your family, but it's just been sort of this online journal of people like myself who talk about our experiences with mental health. And I mean, for me over the years, talking about what I've gone through at work or in my family or in my culture um, has inspired other Asian people to say, you know what, I can probably talk about that too. I have a very similar experience. And I think that is ultimately what needs to happen. You just need to have 
a few people who are, you know, the battering ram who can just crack the door open and leave some space for other people to feel like, hey, there's room for me to include my voice in here too. Absolutely. Okay. Do you find that there are differences between first generation and second generation? Definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, um, first generation, you know, whenever you get closer to the generation zero or whoever first immigrated, you know, there's a thicker pad of armor when it comes to stoicism, when it comes to, I can't let anybody see that anything's wrong. Like my mom, my mom is hardcore like that. Um, and so as you go down the layers of the different generations, it becomes a little bit easier. Um, but obviously that just means that the, the conflict between the generations also becomes magnified because you really start to see the differences in how some of those generations feel about themselves. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. Mm -mm, you're fine. Okay. So how has the U.S. influenced Asian culture positively and or negatively? So I was thinking about this and, you know, the impact of the United States on Asian and Asian American culture is massive. I mean, we really have to start with the history of U.S. colonization of you know, the Philippines, our wars in Vietnam and Korea, the bombs that we dropped in Japan, um, all of this, which erased entire cities and cultures and knowledge uh, that we'll never get back. And so I think that is the context that we first need to think about when we talk about any type of impact, positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so much of our, so much of that impact is shaped by that type of history. Uh, but speaking more from a positive note, I think we can really talk about anything from how early American cartoons like, you know, Mickey Mouse had a profound impact on the anime industry and how it impacted and shaped the formation of companies like Nintendo and the Japanese game industry. Uh, you know, we can talk about Black revolutionaries like Malcolm X or the Black Panthers that had an astronomic impact on Asian American activists like Yuri Kuchiyama, Grace Lee Boggs, Richard Aoki. We can then move on and talk about the legacy of black artists and musicians who basically built the blueprint mm -hmm. for K-pop and the mm -hmm. rebirth and the rebranding of Asian, the Asian nerdy kids to <laughs> transforming that into giving them an avenue to be known as the spiky hair, cool kids who could break dance and listen to hip hop. And so a lot of that is built off of that culture. And so, um, you know, if you want to talk about it from a political standpoint, we can also talk about how black and brown activists have essentially uh, uh, pushed through uh, the culture and allowed immigration reform to take place, which opened the door for Asian immigrants to come to the United States. So, I mean, whether you're talking about it from a cultural, political perspective, there's so many different ways that it has um, had an impact. Yeah. Just to touch on what you were already, you know, segueing us into, our next question is, what are your thoughts on the intersection of Black culture and Asian culture together? Because I know Dr. Strickland and I's favorite movie is heavily steeped in that, which is The Last Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Um, in terms of the intersections, I think one of the things that a lot of people have a misconception about when it comes to 
Asian and Black history and culture um, is that they think that the history only lasted about 20 or 30 years. You know, they think of things like, you know, the recent discussions and controversies happening around uh, stomp Asian hate, or do you think about cultural appropriation, or do you think about rush hour, you know? Uh, but even that is a, a, a complete limitation because people then don't know about the LA uprising in 1992. They don't know about the shooting of uh, Latasha Harlins. Uh, they forget about how Richard Aoki, who was a Japanese American, was um, a field officer in the Black Panthers. They forget about the Third World Liberation Front, which was a, a coalition of Black, Asian, Filipino, Latino, Mexican organizations that um, formed at my alma mater, uh, San Francisco State University. And so this history goes back, like way back in time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, our communities share a lot of really extra fascinating overlaps, you know, whether it's martial arts or love mm -hmm. for Bruce Lee or um, <laughs> even the fact that, um, you know, our communities have been racially seg segregated into underdeveloped housing projects. You know, Chinatown mm -hmm. is yeah. uh, that segregated neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and even, uh, you know, food, which is a really big love of mine, um, there's a lot of overlap there, whether it's like mm -hmm. our shared intersection with seafood boils or yes. curry and rice. So mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. so much rich and vivid history there. Um, and again, e even that isn't enough. Like you can go back over a hundred years and you'll find stories about Black and Asian people who were put on display at the World's Fair and, you know, people who were uh, indigenous folks from Africa and from Asia who were captured and then sold into these shows for the entertainment of mm -hmm. rich white people. So, you know, the, the history is it's deep, it's complicated, it's tragic, it's beautiful, it's upsetting, but I think overall um, it's ongoing, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's important to remind ourselves that the history goes back far, far back when we look behind us and also um, as we look, forward. So there's a lot uh, more history that will continue to be written. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So something that I was wondering about, so both Black and Asian culture, you know, we have assimilation to whiteness, right? Um, but do you find that younger uh, Asian individuals are much more comfortable not necessarily following that route? versus older Asian individuals, you know, more wanting to assimilate and appear, you know, kind of fall into that positive stereotype. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Mm -mm, I, I was listening. Oh, you took a breath. So it sounded like, you <laughs> no, know, I was, I was turning my face to gotcha. look at them. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like, is that more of a age um, differential or is that more just a personality differential? Like what have you kind of seen? Uh, there's a lot of interesting overlap because it can be um it can definitely it could definitely obviously be a, a personalized thing but it can also be a generational thing it could be a regional thing uh because there are differences between you know when you talk about how a lot of asian people who grew up uh in the bay area like me who grew up around other asian people and you didn't really feel like there was this absence of asian communities and you can compare that to the way that certain Asian people who grew up in Utah 
in Texas might feel. And it's totally different. Um, and I found that you can see really interesting mixes. Like you could see Asian people who grew up in the Bay Area in a really diverse neighborhood who, because they didn't feel consistently ostracized for being Asian, they think that race doesn't matter. They feel like, well, I got through life, you know, by my own hard work and, you know, race doesn't matter. Or you can have people who are in the Midwest who are Asian, who grew up around all white people and they feel like, oh, well, you know, all my friends said that they don't see me as Asian. I'm just like one of them. So you find really interesting um, cases and exceptions of people who, you know, if 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 someone has the to, to put it more bluntly, if someone has the bootlicking mentality of like, oh, I always want to, you know, uh, keep up with the Joneses, then they'll 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 find that way. Um, whether it's them living in Utah and being around that environment, around a lot of conservative people, or whether it's just around being a very um, insulated bubble where they don't really actually. Uh, consistently confront the reality of the race. Mm. What pressures do you see on, you know, just kind of the way the world is now on, mm. I would just say young people in general. Um, Cause we're, I think we're all millennials. I think we're all relatively the same age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a millennial. We're zennials and a Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Gen I, X. I was going to say I no. I was like, wait, who's a Gen Z? I, know. <laughs> I was like, no, Renew, you that guy? I know, I was like, no. Is that young? <laughs> no, he's with us. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not a millennial. <laughs> uh, but what do you see as some of the pressures overall for even the younger millennials uh, and late Gen Zers? As far as, you know, adhering to some of the pressures that we had when we were coming up, do you see that it's a little bit lighter, a little bit heavier? Like what, what changes have you noticed um, as far as societal expectation? It's, um, it's really weird because on one hand, you have the increased accessibility due to technology, you know, and, and, and the way that... Um, different advancements in technology and communications um, have made certain things easier. You know, it, it, it makes it easier to uh, learn from other people and it makes it easier to connect with other people and to find different routes that are unconventional. Um, but at the same time, we also have to understand that um, how we've been operating in, in particular in the United States has been so unsustainable uh, for such a long time that, you know, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about um, uh, uh, how how we run our businesses, whether we talk about uh, uh, our debt crisis uh, or our culture of white supremacy, uh, so much of it has been unchecked because we've been sort of stuck in this everything's okay, everything will be okay mm-hmm. kind of mindset. Um and now I think a lot of younger people are faced with the consequences of the ignorance of a lot of folks in previous generations. It isn't to say that, you know, oh, it's all on them, but that's just the reality of the situation. And so I think um, the challenge for a lot of young folks now is to not lose hope, really, because so many young folks um, – look at their options and they look at how expensive college is and how, how little you get paid um, 
working at jobs, whether you're uh, a minimum wage job or whether you're somebody who already graduated and have um, an advanced degree. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of younger folks, um, there can be an overwhelming sense of helplessness. And especially looking on, on social media, you see how well other people are doing, how rich this one person got doing one thing. And so it can be easy to constantly compare yourself uh, to other people. And so I think the challenge is trying to redefine happiness, trying to redefine what does success mean, try to, trying to redefine uh, what a good career path is, trying to redefine what a healthy marriage is. Um, so many things have changed culturally, politically, financially, um, logistically, whether we're talking about trying to find an apartment or trying to raise kids. And so mm-hmm. um there's there's just new challenges that we have to sort of think about. And I think that a lot more people need to stop trying to hound on young people for not doing things <laughs> the way that they used to in the, in the past and recognize that that's because we have a new set of problems that requires a new set of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, much so. You know, one of the uh, questions that you asked on your uh, or that you posted one day was about asking children what they want to be when they grow up. And something you said just now kind of reminded me of that question, because it's like, you know, if the world is changing and if, you know, these children are losing hope, there is a different question that we do need to ask now. But I Mm -hmm. wanted to know, like, what do you think that different question is? You know, I like a lot of millennials and ex-geners grew up consistently being asked, what are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do? What are you going to be? Where are you going to go to college? Um, And I mean, I remember the first thing that I would say when I was younger uh, was I wanted to be the president because I was just like, it's the (laughs) the most important thing ever. So I guess that's the best answer. I I don't know. That was just the answer that I gave. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it just, um, it speaks to the fact that that's that's such a heavy heavy question for an adult, let alone a child. And so I like questions like, um, "What do you like to do for fun?" Because um, that that grooves on a wavelength that kids can understand. Because a lot of kids are into weird stuff, you know, whether they're into lizards or rocks or video games. Um, and it's always interesting to hear from kids in their own language why they think it's fun. Because there could always be these interesting nuggets like, oh, you like collecting rocks because you like um, the variety of them. You like to learn about how these things were formed and how it's connected to uh, our ancient history and like all these interesting things. And I think that you can find just these little rabbit holes that you go on just based off of what they like to do for fun. And so I think that's a really great um, opening question. But I also think that things like, you know, what's your favorite part about school? Um, Because personally, a lot of kids don't like school. And, um, but there are moments that kids do like, like, for me, if you were to ask that question, when I was a kid, I would always say, you know, arts and crafts time, like when you bust out the construction paper and scissors and glue, like that was my thing. Like I was amazing at that. So, and I mean, I guess if you, you know, you follow that lining line of thought, then it would make sense why I I'm now in branding and design. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that I that I heard recently that I thought was a really good question is asking kids, um, how do you want to help people when you become an adult, Ooh, as opposed to mm-hmm. 
you know, as opposed to looking at it from the perspective of like, what are you going to produce? How much money are you going to make? What, what is the title that you're going to bestow mm -hmm. upon your name tag? Um, because asking about how you're going to help people, it can be a career question or it can be more of a question of values and vision of like, what is the overall impact that you want to make on the world? So I think those questions are pretty good. It makes me think about well, at what point do we lose our sense of imagination mm. and hope and fun and freedom? You know, what stage in life does that happen? You know, does mm -hmm. that happen in adolescence? Does that happen in that transition from late adolescence into early adulthood? You know, there is a moment where, you know, you may not be cynical from a life perspective, but there is a bit of cynicism that kind of mm -hmm. starts to develop once you get into adulthood. But like when, like, I like you know, it, it makes me wonder school. about like what happened. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the experience of the child, like their environment. Cause if they um, are raised in a, in an abusive home, in a neglectful home or some sort, then they, they can lose that early mm -hmm. because they have to become an adult. Yeah. A little adult. That's why I like the questions that you pose because they're different. You know, mm -hmm. it keeps that life thirst alive yeah. versus, like you said, pigeonholing you into a title. Yeah. Because most mm -hmm. of the things that we've all listed when we were younger were titles, teacher, doctor, lawyer, mm -hmm. and they're very specific mm -hmm. and very <laughs> traditional. Um mm -hmm. And we all kind of have said the same things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't, I would, I was just wondering like, you know, I wonder what happens. Is it our parents? Is it, yeah. You know, I mean, TV? even Is for it, me, exposure. Mm -hmm. even for me, you know, it's like, I, you know, LaFanya, you were talking about, um, you know, depending on the household, you can get introduced to that really early. That was the case for me, you know, um, especially being in, uh, in an immigrant family with, four kids, me being the youngest, my mom always being at work, there's always this expectation that like, all right, Rainier, you're on your own, uh, you cook for yourself, you take care of yourself, you, you know, do all that. Um, and so, you know, when, when I, when I was younger, I just thought like, okay, cool. I'm just, I'm not a kid anymore. I, I'm, I can be like <laughs> closer to being an adult, but then after you, you know, especially when I got into my late twenties, I, had the realization that like, wow, you know, I just kind of got um, shot out of a rocket and I didn't really have the chance to enjoy some of the things that I should have as a kid, you know, yeah. um, like I was talking to my wife and she would talk about all the different cartoons and shows that she watched. And she was like, Oh, like you didn't watch any of that. I was like, no, I didn't watch any of that. Cause I was, I felt like I had to work on my art and, and learn how to do design and, and essentially start building up my career um, at a really young age. And so, yeah, it definitely has a huge profound impact. Yeah. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. Just in general, you know, cause I think about similarly, you know, my, um, my father was not very vocal, but there, he always had a presence that he had an expectation of you're going to succeed, mm -hmm. you know? So then there's this pressure of, okay, well, I better do something that's going to be successful. I don't know what that thing's going to be, but I better mm -hmm. do something. <laughs> yeah. um, and sometimes some of those unspoken kind of rules and expectations that get put out there, how that changes who you are, how you see the world, how you experience the world, interact with the people around you um, and shape who you end up becoming as an adult. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up 
um, being naturally into art and, and uh, visual arts. Uh, but because my family, you know, is a traditional Filipino family, they're all about, you know, you know, 90% of the people in my family, they're all in, into nursing. Uh, and so there was that pressure of like, this is the path. It's already established. You should probably go ahead and go to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to stash uh, a lot of those dreams and aspirations of getting into art and design because I was, you know, especially in the nineties, there was always this idea of like, okay, unless you're going to be Bob Ross, like you're going to be a starving artist. And so, <laughs> yeah, it has a huge, yeah. it, it definitely um, puts you on a different trajectory than, you know, what you probably really, really want to do. Mm-hmm. For sure. Wow. Mm. Okay. Uh, where are we going? So, <laughs> you know, just kind of keeping with the idea of like vision and, you know, how we have expectations and how we interact with the world, see the world. Um, we've had some pretty big things happen in the last week or Seven so. Seven days. <laughs> um, <laughs> that have had some pretty big um coverage and a lot of talk around it so just thinking about taking that kind of macro level influence right so we have our micro level influence which would be our family friends things like that Mm -hmm. and then we have macro level influence which is outside tv media things like that so with that said we recently had the death of queen elizabeth and that has kind of overshadowed and um, taken over <laughs> everything, everything. Yeah. And she's not mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on like American culture and our focus on what's happening with the, Oh, well, the Royal say, family. Yeah. The Royal family. Cause it's not just the queen. It's mm-hmm. the whole, mm-hmm. the whole gamut. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's something that I've been posting about, uh, this past, past week. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of folks look at the life of Queen Elizabeth as this, like, you know, glamorous, aspirational thing that we need to, like, weep and cry about. Um, But, and and also thinking about how her death has overshadowed so many things. And people have been talking about how, you know, coverage of some of the deaths in their communities um, and some yeah. of the tragic things that are going on um, have been totally overshadowed by mm-hmm. by the queen. Um, and I think for me, it's like the tragedy of Queen Elizabeth is this is somebody who was born in in, in 1926. You know, she she was there when the first she was alive when the first automobiles started to be commercially developed, and she passed at a time when. Um, we've already have the technology to begin the process of colonizing Mars. And to think about the enormous gap in progress that has happened over time. Mm -hmm. And then you think about you're the face and the benefactor uh, or or the beneficiary of um, the British colonial empire. And within the almost a hundred years that you've lived, what have you done? You know, what is the totality of your impact? Mm. You're not just, you know, some random schmuck who like, oh, you know, just it's unfortunate. You just didn't, you know, you know, uh, uh, aspire to your greatest potential. 
No, this is somebody who had every amount of access to do anything at any time. Um, and so I just think about how having that much power and just squandering that opportunity um, is wasted potential. Mm-hmm. I think it is a, a, a life, in my opinion, it's a life not well lived. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw an article recently about how uh, you know, here are five reasons or f- five ways that Queen Elizabeth, um, you know, quietly took a stand. And I'm like, quietly. first off, why quietly, quietly? <laughs> like, there's no repercussion. They're not going to take your crown for like speaking up about something right. quietly. And some of the reasons were like, you know, you know, oh, she she drove a car in a country where women aren't allowed. I was like, okay, cool. Another one was like. She wore uh, a pin that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama gave to her when she met Donald Trump. And I was just thinking to myself, like, okay, so you're the queen of a of of the you know the a British the Empire. And 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 that is that that is about the longevity of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I so saw a video uh or something about I guess Snoop Dogg had gotten in trouble over there and she spoke up for him and I was like well did she know who he was and <laughs> I was like why Snoop Dogg I mean I'm glad but why Snoop Dogg you know it, yeah. you know, it was just weird like that random news <laughs> yeah I don't yeah. think a lot of the British were prepared for the BIPOC community to n- be fine with her passing yeah because like, when I mean you know the BIPOC community like Queen Latifah <laughs> 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 No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were, we, we were just, I was like, oh, I, was like okay. I literally text my mom and she was like, oh, about time. Not in a bad <laughs> way. It's because, I mean, because like, she's old. old. Yeah. Like, like, this is mm-hmm. normal. Like, that's, that's what's yeah. supposed to happen. Yeah. You live a long life, hopefully, and you die, you know? Mm-hmm. I was wondering why she was still the queen. Like, why you hadn't been stepped down? They don't yeah. care. Uh, what they don't do that you there. got to die out yes no i would be like uh-uh, i'm 70 honey get me out of this what but, is this but you got to think about who her son is it's there's a lot but i'm thinking about what you said rainier about you know when she was born versus you know the long right uh, up until when she passed and for m- most of us you know we only know her as an old woman Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. we don't have a recollection of queen elizabeth when she was 40 Right. You know, and when she was really, you know, out there making decisions and doing things and it was vibrant enough to vibrant and affecting the world. You know, we've Mm -hmm. only known her as this old lady with these hats and a purse. And, you Mm -hmm. know, she Mm -hmm. just kind of her pearls. You know, we we don't know her as a a ruler. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think for the young, especially, um, you know, maybe late gen xers Mm -hmm. millennials and definitely gen z uh you know there's really no tie there's no we don't have a frame of reference for really who she is other than queen elizabeth and then there's been this huge opening up of the dirt Mm -hmm. that is connected of course most of us are always going to know princess diana and you know that whole situation and even Meghan markle yeah, but I'm saying like we know that we know that for certain. Mm-hmm. But then you get to talking about the genocides. You get to talking about how many blood jewels they still have, and just all. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, well, this is happening. 
Right. So <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I do agree with you. Like all of this time that has passed, you haven't made anything right. You haven't yeah. returned any spoils that y'all that was stolen or kept or, you know, like you haven't made any effective changes over here, which is why I don't understand how her passing overshadowed people over here. Like mm-hmm. anybody, mm-hmm. it don't. I mean, it could have been our next door neighbor. It anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So sad. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's just you know that's that's the unfortunate <laughs> you know um, that's the unfortunate um, tragedy of life. You know, it's like you could be um, a very wealthy person who does nothing, and you'll get you know a million people coming to your funeral, but you could be a person who is making lasting uh, real change, but, you know, uh, because people don't know you as much because you're not as rich, um, you know, that impact won't be as well known. Yeah. So true. And I, and the the thing about it is, you know, our hearts go out to her family because of course, regardless of how yeah. we view her, her family mm-hmm. still love yeah, her. That's still somebody, mm-hmm. mama, yeah. Annie, yeah. granny, mm-hmm. great granny, mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. But mm-hmm. as the monarch, that doesn't really hold a lot of weight for many right. countries. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but, you know, to segue into our next part with, you know, thinking of the relationship that she had with Meghan Markle and her grandson, Harry. And she said she has said herself several times that she did like her. Uh, the media does did not like her or it still continues to not like her. Uh what recommendations can you give to other interracial couples in combining the cultures, you know, cause that, that can be a difficult thing for people from two of the same cultures, but you got these two on opposites. You got the American and the British, mm-hmm. you got the uh, biracial kid. That's a celebrity actress. And then you have this military white ginger dude. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, um, a lot of my work early on um, on the Love Life of Nation guy was about uh, interracial dating. And so I, I think that the prevailing recommendation that I'd have um, for a lot of interracial couples is don't mistake yourself for being this, you know, superior third eye seeing interracial person. <laughs> um, because I think that, you know, there are just, there are too many people uh, who think that their interracial relationship makes them wholly unique, like mm-hmm. supremely intelligent and hot because they were able to cross over. Um, and that because I was selected, um, <laughs> I am be- I'm better than somebody of the same race um, as their partner. Mm-hmm. And so I just say, um, you know, don't don't assume that being with someone means that you understand their people. There are way too many people who are like, "Oh, I'm, I'm with the Asian dude, so I get it now." Like, you get, you get what? <laughs> um, you know, dating a black woman, dating an Asian man doesn't mean that you've absorbed what it means to be them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you have to, on your own, you have to investigate the social, the political, the cultural aspects of what your partner experiences, you know, their heritage, because that's part of your life now too. Um, And so you should be able to have a deep understanding of that experience, especially since, you know, if you're going to have 
children one day, then that's going to be integral to your children's identity. And you're going to be able to have to pass that knowledge on or else you end up with a lot of these perpetually confused mixed race children who are like, mm -hmm. uh, what am I? And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I've always loved this idea that um, mixed children or interracial couples um, shouldn't have to look at themselves as fractions, as I am 50% of this or I'm 50% of that, meaning I'm not, I, I, I can't be fully proud of this because it's not entirely me. Um, I saw this book in the Japanese market, the Japanese bookstore. Um, and it was like a, a booklet of um, a bunch of uh, biracial Asian people. And there's this, there are a bunch of photographs of these people. And then they wrote down a message. And one of the messages that always stuck with me, like just for years was a photo of this dude who was half black and half Japanese and the only thing that he wrote was 100% black, 100% Japanese. And I loved that perspective of just mm. not seeing yourself as like, you know, multiple fragmented pieces mm -hmm. coming together and piecing together this yeah. broken individual. Like, no, like you're a complete person. You can be fully in love with your black culture. You can be fully in love with your Japanese culture. Um, and so you should be able to feel like you can be um, wholly yourself. Um, in all different parts of that culture. No, no one side should be hidden or obscured. Um, you should understand and learn the good and the bad parts of it, the, the differences and similarities. Um, and also recognize that interracial couples, um, you know, you can start new traditions and write new narratives. It doesn't have to just be based off of this shallow understanding of stereotypes or trying to break those stereotypes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when when you're dating and you're, you know, of the same race, it's difficult to communicate because people don't know how to communicate. Mm -hmm. But when you date in interracial relationships, do you think there needs to be a different type of conversation or just conversations still just need to be had? You know, I think um, that's where the understanding of the different cultures uh, really comes into play, because I remember... Um, when I was in community college, I was, I was in a uh, class called Dialogues Across Differences. And they were talking about just the ways that different cultures uh, communicate, you know, the way that more Western cultures uh, wear their opinions on their sleeves, whereas on a lot of Asian cultures, they reserve that. And it isn't to say that, okay, every Asian person I talk to is going to be like that, but it just provides the context so you know that, okay, my partner is talking this way and they're, you know, being very emotional. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're mad. It's just that they have a different style of communication. And so mm -hmm. I think understanding communication styles, understanding how culture impacts those communication styles, like, you know, uh, that, that also has a profound benefit when it comes to understanding your partner's families. Cause that's an entirely different thing yes. that you end up having to deal with because you know, your, your partner might have shades of uh, uh, connectivity when it comes to how they communicate relative to their culture, but their parents might be like the hardcore version of that. So it definitely helps to, to understand some of those differences. I think that's important. Uh, as you were kind of talking about all of this, it made me think about this video that I saw on um, YouTube the other day um, of a, a man, uh, 
man that was black and Japanese and him and a uh, white woman were, they live in Japan. Well, he's from Japan, but she moved, um, is an expat. Uh, and they were walking around the street and they were doing the whole thing where like they pretend they don't know how to speak Japanese and <laughs> just <laughs> wait for people to, you know, say something. And then they speak in mm-hmm. uh, Japanese and how many people looked at both of them and said, Oh, your Japanese is so good. And the guy was like, well, no, I am Japanese. Mm-hmm. And he and they kept continuing to tell him, oh, but your Japanese is so good. And he was like, no, no. <laughs> I am <laughs> Japanese. And it was just like it, it just well, there was this disconnect. So mm-hmm. he then had a little bit of an interview piece later on. And one of the things that he talked about was the struggles that his father had. You know, his father was Nigerian and his mother was Japanese. And he talked about the struggles that his father had and the struggles his mother had while he was growing up, along with the ones that he had. And it was so funny to hear how different all of their experiences were Mm. that, you know, the mother, his mother's struggle was, you know, people not believing that he was her son. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, his father was kind of like the perpetual foreigner. Uh, and then he, you know, people not believing that he was, you know, Japanese, that he, cause his, uh, primary language was Japanese. Mm. So, you know, he was saying that people, you know, the struggle with people not believing that he was Japanese and still trying to maintain internally like a sunny disposition mm-hmm. and not become cynical, uh, to his environment because there was, a, you know, a very small, especially at that time, a very small um, subset of individuals that were he I can't remember the word he used for half Japanese half black it was some specific word but I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was um, but he was saying you know it was really difficult to maintain a a positive healthy outlook on himself and the world mm. oh yeah I mean you you end up um, caught between two different worlds and sometimes you feel like you don't fit in either and so especially if uh, a lot of folks just aren't speaking up about those experiences, then yeah. you can just end up feeling like you're in limbo and you have no one to talk to, no one who understands your position. And it becomes even more tricky when you're in, you know, a culture like Japan where, uh, uh, like you said, you are a perpetual foreigner um, and you'll always just be doubted in that way. And so, yeah, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That made my heart hurt for him. Mm -hmm. As I was watching, I was like, oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So then what about for yourself, you know, um, as an Asian man, you know, what have you seen or what have you experienced as far as stereotypes, um, you know, belief systems from, you know, the people in your environment? I mean, for throughout my life, there have been so many different stereotypes that I've had to try to understand and and really unpack because when you're younger you hear a lot of this crap especially being a young boy being on the internet growing up on the internet and people just lobbying racial slurs and crap at you um and so there are so many different fronts from whether it's you know the emotional stereotypes stereotypes about what it means to be Asian mentally or in terms of your relationship to other people or sexually And so, you know, 
when it comes to mentally and emotionally, there have always been these stereotypes about Asian people being robots, having no emotions, not having valid opinions. Um, and that has contributed to a lot of Asian people's <clears throat> input in organizations or schools just not being valued and us being seen as primarily workhorses. You know, you're only valued based off of your output and your productivity. And so, you know, I had to learn how to value my own emotions. I had to learn how to share my own candid opinions. Uh, so that way I could empower myself essentially um, because I knew that, okay, I can, I can do this and hopefully I could pass it on. You know, when it comes to different relationships, there have always been stereotypes about Asian people not being trustworthy. You know, there's the yellow peril stereotype if we want to go into the deep propaganda of it um, or this idea that Asian people only care about other Asians. And so for me, you know, I reconciled with that by making sure that I built my community and my platform towards bridging gaps between different communities, uh, forming new connections, creating new experiences together, and really just connecting over some of that shared history. Um, and I think obviously one of the most prevalent stereotypes, uh, there have been so many ones about Asian men and women sexually as, mm -hmm. you know, whether Asian women are, are painted as uh, uh, sexually promiscuous deviants or Asian men are sexually incompetent. And so I had to learn about like, what are the origins of some of these yeah. uh, uh, forms of racial propaganda about Asian bodies, about Asian sex. Um, and I had to learn how to unpack white beauty standards so I could actually have a full context of like, what is keeping these narratives alive? Why do people continue to share it and push it? Um, and when you learn just how a lot of these stereotypes function, mm -hmm. um, you just, it, it all boils down to dehumanization and humiliation oh, yeah. in order to exert control. Yeah. Um, and so I think learning about the history really just allowed me and a lot of other people of color uh, to take back that control to be able to write our own stories and share our own experiences about what mm -hmm. our sex lives and our sexuality are like, because, you know, to kind of tie it all back together, um, the love life of an Asian guy was that attempt for me. You know, I was yeah. 18, 19 years old when I came up with the concept. Cause I was like, you know what? Um, there's not enough media about what it's really like being an Asian guy who was single trying to, you know, date and, and, and find a partner. Um, and there were too many stereotypes about Asian men being awkward and, you know, being nerdy and nobody likes them. And so I was like, you know what, I want to start a platform where I'm just like really brutally honest about the dates that have gone bad, you know, poorly, <laughs> the dates that have gone really well, the times that I've met somebody who I was really enamored by and I got my heart broken or the time that I met my future wife. And so, um, I think, you know, it's, it's important to understand the stereotypes so you can learn how to, uh, write your own narratives, write your own stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me of when I have my sex therapy clients come in and they are talking about, Hey, we want to learn how to do the Kama Sutra. Or we want to learn how to do tantric sex. And I'm like, well, I'm going to send you to somebody that's Asian because that is their culture. Yes, I can teach you that. And I will teach you like the basics, but I'm going, 
that my resources are typically someone who is steeped in the culture that we are essentially appropriating. Because when you see that and you learn about that end of uh, relationships and sexuality, it is typically some Caucasian man educating people. Mm. It's the same way in the yoga community. That is an Asian practice. That is not California white people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like most people can't even say like, like, the asanas and all these different things that go on in these practices. And I think I'm seeing more of um, a thirst for people to understand where things come from and know it, um, the roots of it, Mm -hmm. not just learning the techniques. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm seeing that shift. And I'm also glad that, you know, we get to be a part of that change, giving that back over to the different communities that deserve that. And uh, it belonged to. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. What I have always thought was interesting, uh, something that you were talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, stereotypes about um, Asian men and Asian women. It made me think about how the stereotypes for black women and black men, Asian men and Asian women, we're on the like complete opposite extremes, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. you know, black men are heavily sexualized mm-hmm. and fetishized um and mm-hmm. then black women are you know either sexualized the, yeah, and the jezebel you know mm-hmm. we you know we're nymphomaniacs that kind of thing um or we're super prudish it's either one or the other um mm-hmm. and then you know like you were saying for asian men it's the on the opposite end of that spectrum mm-hmm. um and I have wondered that, wonder if recently, because I've seen a lot more, I don't know if this is because of social media, more Asian and Black couples mm-hmm. um, coming together. And mm-hmm. I've wondered if it's part of some of that. We've been so marginalized by um, all of these other white most likely uh, cultures is that we found some camaraderie with one another and have been able to come together. And, you know, I understand that experience. You understand that experience. And now we have some common ground to start from Mm -hmm. and can create. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I love it because that, that goes back to one of the fundamental sort of narratives that I feel like exists within, um, white supremacy that has been used to marginalize black and Asian people, which is this idea of, of the Goldilocks method, where if, if I, as a white person want to position myself favorably, then I just need to position black folks on one end and Asian people on the other end. And I'm seen as the happy middle. So if Asian people are very deficient in one area and black people are uh, uh, super sufficient in another area, then we are in the middle. We're normal. We are, you know, we're how you normally should look. Your body should look how, how your sex should be like. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's um, like you talking about that shared understanding. Um, I've heard that from so many different Asian black folks who talk about how, um, you know, even though we might not have the same experiences, we understand what it feels like to have your narrative hijacked mm-hmm. and for people to, 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 to force a narrative about what they think your body is like, what they think yeah. being with you is like, what mm-hmm. they think, you know, being intimate with you is like. Um, and that's, again, why we have to always go back to, you know, where does the narrative come from? What is the... Mm-hmm where where does the story actually begin because unfortunately 
for so many of these stereotypes, it begins with a white person authoring that story and then dis disseminating it and pretending as if that is the gospel of what it means mm -hmm. to be us. Yeah. Yeah. Something that always stands out in my mind is that the victor always gets to tell the story of the captive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not until more recent years where the descendants of those captives, you know, across the board are kind of taking those stories back and trying to understand what is real mm -hmm. and what isn't. And you're like, oh, okay, that was fake. Y'all been telling me this fake story mm -hmm. <laughs> for all these years. Oh, and you, they're sweating bullets. They're trying to hold on to bullets. these lies. <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, I went to an event last night and it was for the premiere, an early premiere of uh, the Warrior Queen. Or the, the woman, king. the woman king. Let me get my English together. Um, and when I tell you the energy that you feel in watching that oh, movie, I like last night, I was crying. Oh, I man. was like, I need to get it together. These people go think I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you could feel. And no, the story was not um, without blame. You know, it, it told the real story of how there were some. African participants in the slave trade, you know, mm -hmm. but it also told this story of redemption. It told this story of getting your life together, facing your demons and different things like that. And those are not the stories that a lot of people of color get to see. Mm -hmm. We see the enslavement. <laughs> we get to be the funny sidekick mm -hmm. or the person with the bad attitude or the sexy seductress. Like we don't get a lot of the story inside the of the story. Mm -hmm. It was several stories because I, I yes. saw it last night. So it was uh, several stories within the story. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, man, that was, oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, that was, okay, okay. You know, so it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I like that. Okay, that's part. We're going to come back to that. Okay. <laughs> okay, I know what that, okay. And, you know, it was just about the culture mm -hmm. and just to, just to see the uh, rituals and the uh, movements and the y'all know I love dancing so the yeah. dancing the, the drums it was just mm -hmm. it was beautiful mm -hmm. yeah and and those are things like you were saying um Rainier, that they have tried to steal from us mm -hmm. um the, mm -hmm. that's a part of our culture and um identification that they tried to steal but and we've allowed them to hold on to it until recently mm -hmm more recently oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um and now we're getting more is with black people with asian individuals all of us are trying to understand us better now yeah and not yeah. believe <laughs> the big lie yeah <laughs> oh yeah i mean even just thinking about um queen elizabeth you know it's like in order for for her image of this glamorous queen to have existed um it was predicated on our ancestors being positioned as the monster of her story as being yeah. the, the animals, the, the rats, the gorillas, and you know, the, the evil force of her story. And so I think what's happening um, over the last 20 years is people of color are realizing that, you know, what is the story within the story? You know, we we've heard, um, if from this perspective of, of the white knight, but like what actually happened, mm -hmm. you know, let's talk to the actual people um, and allow them to reclaim that story. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, well, I think that's a great stopping point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely want to say thank you again, Rainier, for taking time out to do this with us. Mm-hmm. You know, this has been um, an honor and a pleasure. So if you don't mind one more time, just telling everybody how they can, you know, find you where you're located uh, so that they can go and follow you too. Of course. So if anybody wants to go ahead and follow me, um, you can follow me on Facebook, the love life of an Asian guy. Um, I'm also on Facebook at lag media, or you can go ahead and visit uh, lag media on YouTube. I'm on TikTok, Instagram. Um, I'm not on be real yet. Um, but, um, I am, I'm out here. So you can definitely find me, uh, if you're interested in working on branding, if you're a, uh, a BIPOC creative or progressive, reach out to me. I'd love to help. So, okay, interns, process your notes. Be sure to catch us next session and find us on all major platforms at The Recycled Podcast. If you're a new intern, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share. Thanks for listening. And remember, we are shifting and reshaping our psyche through healing conversations and connections, one discussion at a time.